0: I'd invite you to turn in your Bibles now to the sixth chapter of the Gospel of John. John chapter 6, our reading is going to be from verses 25 to 40, John chapter 6. Just a little bit of introduction as we come to uh, read this passage. Uh, Of all the miracles which Christ did, uh, besides the resurrection rising from the dead, Uh, The miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 is one which is mentioned in all four of the Gospels, Uh, but there aren't any other miracles that all four of the Gospels mention. What's significant about the Gospel of John is that you have an entire discourse and message that Jesus connects to the feeding of the 5,000, and that's what we're going to be looking at and considering today. That message and uh, what that message means. So we're going to be jumping into the middle section of that message. Uh, if we were to give it due attention, we could actually spend uh, several Sundays poring over the, the significance of everything that's found in that chapter. But for this morning, we're just going to be looking at verses 25 to 40. When they found him on the other side of the sea, meaning the 5,000 or a representative number of the 5,000, Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me. That I shall lose nothing of all that He has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. Let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, we ask that you might be so pleased to give us a strong measure of your Holy Spirit as we. Uh, Consider this passage of the Holy Scriptures. Help us to understand, Father, what is spoken of here concerning your Son, our Savior. Help us not only to understand, but that this would deepen our faith. And for any who don't know you, Father, may this be the day that they come to understand what it means for Jesus to be the bread of life. And then we would pray as believers. uh, Help us to identify not only with our Savior Jesus, but with the purpose for which you sent him into this world, that there was a gospel, there was good news. There was a message which, would all people believe it, it would not only transform their lives here, but it would give them everlasting life in the life to come. And so we pray, use your word, strengthen us, and motivate us, and encourage us, and deepen us, and all of these wonderful things that pertain to our life in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, this year we've been looking at a particular theme in terms of our messages. Uh, a theme that actually arises out of things which Jesus himself said uh, in the Gospel of John and other places, but in the Gospel of John uh, back in chapter 5. In fact, if you were to think about John chapter 5, verse 39 uh, and then verse 46, uh, you would be thinking about these words that Jesus uttered to those who were opposing him out of the Jewish leadership. In John five thirty-nine, Jesus says, you, meaning that principally the Pharisees, but also the Sadducees. You search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. But it is they that bear witness about me. And then in verse 46, he also says, For if you believed Moses, you would believe me because he wrote of me. So there we have that significant statement that grounds the idea that we can find Christ in all of the Old Testament. So the question is, how? Uh, how do the Old Testament scriptures bear witness of Christ? And and how did Moses write about Christ as Jesus said he did? Well, we've been looking at this. Uh, we can say by prophecy. In fact, there's that first prophecy we find in Genesis uh, chapter 3, verse 15, about how the seed of the woman is going to come to crush the serpent's head. Prophecy we also see it as we read through the Old Testament, especially these first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, we see it by the themes that are presented there, Uh, themes of redemption and salvation again and again. Uh, We see that redemption and salvation theme exemplified in a very powerful way in terms of the story of Noah's Ark, God's great judgment coming upon the world. But Noah finding favor in the sight of God and God delivering Noah and his family and and two of every kind of animal, and, and, and God preserving his great order of the world during this time of judgment. God's judgment, God's provision of salvation and deliverance. Also by the covenant, the covenant promise. Uh, we know in the time of Abraham, God promised to Abraham and to his seed, in you shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. And we know from the New Testament that great blessing is Christ. Christ is the seed of Abraham that blesses the entire world. So covenant promise. We also see it by the historical acts of God, historical acts of redemption and salvation. Uh, That's the whole story of Joseph, how God sent Joseph ahead down into Egypt because there was a great famine that was going to come upon the entire world. And so God, through Joseph, worked to deliver his family which was going to preserve the seed of the woman and brought about a great deliverance and salvation for them. But then also, as we finish the book of Genesis and come into the book of Exodus, we see the other great historical act of God by which salvation and redemption are presented, and that is the Exodus itself. Uh, God delivering his own people uh, out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And then we also see that that Jesus is referred to in various types that represent who Christ is. Uh, we, we've, we've noticed that at the Passover, the Passover lamb itself is that which typifies, speaks to, represents, presents Christ. That the very blood on the doorpost reminds us of the blood of the cross. It's why the Apostle Paul said that Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast. Uh, The Shekinah glory of God, uh, that which appeared in the cloud and the pillar of fire. The New Testament tells us, identifies that that is Jesus himself who is the Shekinah glory of God. All those powerful statements by the Apostle Paul as well as the writer of the Hebrews that in Christ we have the fullness of the glory of God. And then further, the tabernacle. The tabernacle was a type of Christ. The very presence of God in the midst of his people. Jesus identified himself as the very temple and tabernacle of God in John chapter 2. But even in John chapter 1, when we read that the word became flesh and dwelt for a while among us, the word dwelt there can also be translated as tabernacled. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us for a while and of course the incarnation is God is with us which reflects the fact that God was with Israel in the wilderness in terms of the tabernacle that went with them but connected to the tabernacle we have the priest the mediators between God and man fulfilled in Christ because the apostle Paul said there is now only one mediator between God and man the man Christ Jesus And then, of course, the priesthood of Christ after the order of Melchizedek is one of the principal themes of the book of Hebrews. That God appointed his own son to be this mediator, this priest who's been tempted at all points as we are yet without sin. And therefore, he can be a sympathetic high priest. He can be one who can know our struggles and intercede for us by his indestructible life. We see as well that sacrifices are typified and represented in Christ. That he's the fulfillment of all the sacrifices, but especially the day of atonement. That in the two goats that are presented, one goat is sacrificed, its blood is shed. The second goat is the sins are placed upon that goat and is released out into the wilderness. To tell us that in Christ the fullness of all of our sins atoned for and taken away. And then the rock. The rock that gave Israel water in the wilderness. We're told in the New Testament that that rock itself was Christ. And the great sin of God's people was following the meanderings and wanderings and rebelliousness of their own heart when they should have been trusting the rock at all times. And then the bronze serpent. Something that the law never spoke of as a means by which people would be reconciled to God. And the fact that these fiery serpents were then that problem of judgment and punishment, the salvation and deliverance was through this bronze serpent that they just needed to look to and live, spoke to the fact that all the provisions of the law were not ultimately adequate to deal with the problem of sin. And so Jesus is ultimately represented in that bronze serpent because as they looked to the bronze serpent and lived, so we look to Christ and are saved, John chapter 3. Now we come to the manna, the bread of heaven, John chapter 6. Now think about this. Where do we get again the, 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 the off? Reason for looking at all these things as types, being able to see Christ in the Old Testament? Well, uh, the apostles, they, they got this from Jesus. So listen to what the apostle Paul says, 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 through 4. He says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food. And all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. That rock was Christ. Now notice the phrase, the same spiritual food. So we've got various New Testament writers pointing to the Old Testament, directing us to look back and to find Christ and the things that are spoken of there. Jesus Christ, the great theme of the Bible, the great theme of, of salvation, deliverance, and redemption. Now we come to this story then in John chapter 6. Jesus claims to be the bread from heaven, the bread of life. And so that's going to take us back to an Old Testament story, back to the book of Exodus, specifically back to chapter 16, to the things that God was doing with the people of Israel, not just to deliver them out of the house of bondage, not just claiming them to be his people, but he was doing these things with his ancient people in order to bear witness to Christ. So, out of that, the message that we can see today can be expressed in this way. We have a great need as human beings. We don't always understand that we have this great need, but we have this great need because of our great sinfulness. The great need in this life and in the life to come is found in Christ, who under the idea and metaphor of the bread of life, the bread of heaven, expresses this thought that no human being can be truly, genuinely happy and satisfied with this life no human being can ultimately be at peace with himself in this life. And of course, no human being can ever be at peace with God in this life unless he has come to know in Christ the bread which is from God. Only in Christ can we find our true and ultimate satisfaction. And that's really what John chapter 6 says. Is ultimately about in terms of the message that Christ gives there. So we're going to look at the question of human need. We're going to look at the question of human desire. And then we're going to look at what Christ brings, the satisfaction of Christ. So this human need idea shows up back in Exodus chapter 16. And then how that human need is described later in in the book of Deuteronomy. So the Old Testament story, you know, Exodus chapter 16, um, they are into the second month out of, of uh, Egypt, and they're in the Sinai Peninsula. And a few weeks earlier, they had left an oasis where there was plenty of water, and now they've gone further toward Mount Sinai. They're still a month out from Mount Sinai, and they're in a place that is destitute of essentially food and water. It's, it's a very, very barren place place and so in chapter 16 we, we see that they are grumbling against Moses grumbling against God for what has taken place now this grumbling then becomes the occasion under which God does an incredible miracle but it's not just a one-time miracle it's a miracle that's going to last over 40 years it's going to be a miracle that has a particular pattern it's going to have a six and one pattern. Uh, for six days, there's going to be this, this, this wonderful stuff from heaven, this manna from heaven, this bread from heaven. And the Israelites are supposed to go out from Sunday through uh, Friday, and they're supposed to collect this manna. And on Fridays, they're supposed to collect twice the amount because on Saturday, on the Sabbath, there's going to be no manna given. And this is going to happen uh, week after week after week, year after year for 40 years. And this is God's incredible provision for them uh, in the desert, and this is the spiritual food that the Apostle Paul speaks of in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3, where they all ate this same spiritual food. But what is the lesson of this manna? Well the lesson is that which God gives through Moses at the end of the 40-year period of time. The book of Deuteronomy is written in the last part of the 40-year wandering. Moses gives the law and all of its provisions a second time. But then Moses is going to describe what was going on when this manna was coming that God was basically given to the people. So, Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, we read this. The whole commandment that I command you today, uh, Moses speaking, but God really speaking through Moses. Uh, this whole commandment that I command you today, so you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in, and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with the manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he, and here's the important thing, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Now, here's the big lesson. Uh, in this whole incident of what's going on in the feeding of the manna and the wilderness, God is emphasizing to his people what they are like by his creation. They are a dual-natured kind of thing that God has created. They are that which possesses biological life, physical life, but they are that which also possesses spiritual life. They are body and soul. They are a physical part and they are a spiritual part. God has made them this way, and of course they need to nourish their physical life, their biological life, but God is saying to them, you don't live by that alone. It is necessary for you to live, for you to truly live, to have the spiritual part of your nature properly nourished. You don't live by bread alone, but you live by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And if we were to study the concept of the mouth of God, which translates also into the spoken word of God, which translates then into the written word of God, we would recognize that every word that comes from the mouth of God ultimately is to be found in the holy scriptures of God, the whole counsel of God. Now, the important big lesson about the human need is to recognize we're not physical only, but spiritual. Therefore, we don't live on the horizontal only, but there's a most significant vertical dimension. And it's the vertical, it's the spiritual that which comes from God and from His Word, that is the most important. Now, that's echoed for us in the New Testament in any number of ways. But think about it in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 18, where Paul says, As we look not to the things that are seen, the physical dimensions, the visible dimensions of the world, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient or temporary. But the things that are unseen are eternal. And then in chapter 5 verse 7 he says, "For we walk by faith, not by sight." We walk by trusting in God and the things we can't see, not by the things that we actually can see with respect to the temporal and transitory world. Now, that's the great truth about who we are and what we are. What's the big lie? Uh, The big lie is that biological life is all that we have, or it's all that's really important. It's all that really matters. So our biological life is that which is really most important. That's what we must take care of. Life's purpose for any one of us is to take care of our physical life, our biological life, that which is there on that little dot between our headstone, between the, the... the date we're born and the date we die, that little dot, that's the important thing about us. That's the big lie. Uh, It's the idea that all we really know is this life, and therefore that's the one we have to take care of. Our chief purpose in life, man's chief end, woman's chief end, is to glorify self and to satisfy self in this life until we die. That would be the catechism of the humanistic man. Now... That big lie, of course, began where? Genesis chapter 3. The big lie began in Genesis chapter 3 in the temptation in the fall of Adam and Eve who were tempted by Satan in the form of the serpent to think that that which satisfies this life, that which can aggrandize this life, that is that which is most important. That which can satisfy the... Lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life, that is what matters the most instead of living by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. Now, that's the background for what happens then in John chapter 6 when Jesus does this great miracle of feeding the 5,000. We recognize what the human need is to understand ourselves as both body and soul, of which our relationship vertically to God is most important. That's the big truth. That's the big human need to understand. But then we go into, look at John chapter 6, which speaks about, but in contrast, what do human beings actually desire? Now what human beings actually desire is demonstrated in how the crowds reacts to Christ and his miracle. That response is found in verses 14 and 15. Now notice, when the people saw the sign that he has done, feeding the 5,000, collecting a dozen baskets of bread and Numerous baskets of fish afterwards. When they see everything that Jesus has done, this is what they say. Indeed, this is the prophet who's come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. And then in verse 26, Jesus diagnoses their motivation directly when he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. In other words, the motivation, motivating them, moving them to seek Jesus, was their biological life. It was their physical life. It was their bellies. It was their life in this world. It was the horizontal. It was not the vertical. Let's make Jesus king because Jesus can give us bread. Now, a little bit of sympathy for them. They were a nation that was being oppressed by the Romans. Uh, they probably uh, were suffering under such high taxation that they likely didn't, uh, they weren't able to make their gross domestic product as good as it could have been without that government on top of them. So there was probably an enforced poverty and an enforced a scarcity of supplies and things that would not have been there if the Roman government hadn't been there. So we can understand that out of their sense of oppression and need, they may have thought, this is a great thing. Uh, Give us somebody who will always feed us bread, who will always take care of us in this life. But to react that way is to react contrary to the great lesson of Deuteronomy 8, 3. You don't live by bread alone. Your life is not summed up in this world. Uh, You can't define who you are simply from birth to grave by the horizontal and the things of this life. No, there's a spiritual dimension to your life that has priority over everything. So those who react this way are acting contrary to what the Old Testament has said to us in Deuteronomy 8.3. So they should have known better, as Jews who knew their Bible, they should have known that the desire to privilege the biological life over their spiritual life was exceptionally wrong and faulty thinking. What it did to them, though, is it perverted their view of Christ. How do they see Jesus. On the one hand, they said, oh, this is the prophet who's to come into the world. Let's make him a king because he'll always supply us with bread. They saw Jesus as the answer to their biological needs, their horizontal desires. And that illustrates how human beings again and again will seek ultimate satisfaction in this life. Uh, think about ultimate satisfaction by those who want to achieve some kind of ultimate achievement. It might be in the Olympics. It might be in the arts. It might be as a movie star. Or some ultimate knowledge in terms of being a scientist and scientific research and breakthrough. It might be some kind of ultimate power in terms of political aspirations. It might be some kind of ultimate wealth in terms of breaking into the you know, top 50 billionaires in the world. It might be some kind of ultimate love. It might be believing that finding the right love will give me ultimate satisfaction in life. It might be believing in some kind of ultimate security, my 401K or my iris or whatever. You might be believing that there's got to be some kind of ultimate but earthly peace or some kind of ultimate but earthly happiness. These are the things which human beings desire. We see it all around us. But especially when Christ is perverted or when faith is perverted or when God is perverted, it winds up looking like this. God owes this to me. This is what the God I believe in has promised to me to give me ultimate happiness or ultimate love or ultimate peace or ultimate security or ultimate wealth or ultimate power. And of course, again, the source of this perspective is found back in Genesis 3 where we can see that the perversion of what God has done becomes the second oldest religion in the world. Of course, the oldest religion of the world is God's own truth. The second oldest religion of the world is somehow you can take whatever you value in terms of your spiritual life and use it for your own personal satisfaction and self-aggrandizement. So let's make Jesus our king so he can feed us and satisfy our bellies all the days of our lives. Uh, Let's believe that God is the God that if we say it and name it, we can claim it because God will do it for us. Let us believe that if we just simply pray hard enough, God must do what we want him to do. Uh, Let's reject believing in God if we don't get from God what we desire the God we believe in must be the God that serves our desires. That is the second oldest religion in the world. It is the great lie. Now think then about how Jesus responded to this manifestation of human desire. First, what Jesus does is the diagnostic of this human desire, and Jesus exposes its true motivation. Again, reading verse 26, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you who are seeking me, you seek me not because you saw signs indicative of the vertical, but rather because you ate your fill of the loaves. You got your bellies full. You got the horizontal. You got the physical, biological dimensions of life addressed. So Jesus is saying, you have this horizontal and physical and biological focus upon life. You allow your human desires to lead you in terms of your understanding of your purposes in life. And then Jesus again reemphasizes the distinction between the biological life and the spiritual life, verse 27. He says, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. This is, in its own way, a reiteration of Deuteronomy 8, verse 3. Human beings, sure, you have a biological life. Of course you do. That is so evident. But you have a spiritual life. And so Jesus says, don't work for the food that perishes. Don't make your ultimate aim in life. For that which is transitory, that which is temporal, that which is going to fade away, that which is going to decay, that which is going to end. And even in this life, promise you so many times of disappointment. Don't work for that, Jesus is saying. Instead, He says, understand the priority of the spiritual life. Work for the food that endures to eternal life. Spiritual life must be fed with true spiritual food. The dimension of life that's eternal, that is what needs to be addressed. Jesus declares the necessary priority over our relationship with God over everything else in life the eternal over the temporal, the unseen over the seen. And then Jesus gives the great declaration that he is the bread of life. And what does Jesus mean when he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. What he really is saying is this. Ultimate satisfaction, is not going to be found in achievement or knowledge or power or wealth or love, security, peace, happiness, anything that pertains to this life. True satisfaction, that which satisfies hunger, that which satisfies thirst, true human need is only going to be found in Christ. Why? Because you have these disordered needs, desires. You have these disordered desires because you broke your relationship with God. You broke your relationship with God. Sin is ultimately your problem. The wages of sin is death. Our sinfulness has perverted our desires. We think what we need in this life. When it's fueled by our desires, what we think we need will always lead us astray. Sin warps our understanding of what we actually need. But Jesus, as the bread of life, brings eternal life. He says later in verse 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I'll give for the life of the world is my flesh. The gospel has never wavered on this point. Jesus gave his own life over unto death by dying upon the cross. The Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world, the good shepherd dying for the sheep, Christ dying for the church, the church of God which he purchased with his own blood, even those from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And that salvation is as Jesus describes it then in verse 40. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. Once again, we see here Jesus defines what saving faith is all about. Look to the sun, and believe in Him. I'll close with this description that Spurgeon gives of this saving faith. Spurgeon says this, it's very much like a condition of a child in a second story house that's on fire and he's hanging out the window with a death grip If he falls, he falls to the ground, shattered. If he doesn't let go, he will perish in the fire itself. He is in danger of death until a strong man comes along who says to him, Boy, boy, drop, and I will catch you. And Spurgeon says, Now, it's not saving faith for the boy to recognize the voice and to believe the man is strong. That's helpful, but that's not saving faith. The boy could know this and still perish. It is not the trust that saves until the boy lets go and drops into the arms of his deliverer below. So Spurgeon concludes this way He says, Sinner, you either cling to your sins or you're clinging to your good works. But the Savior says, drop, drop into my arms. It is not any doing of yours that's going to save you. It is abandoning any doing on your own that will ultimately save you. It is not any works of your own that's going to save you. It is trusting in the work that's already been done for you that will save you. And so Spurgeon says, trust. That is the word. Simple, solid, hearty, earnest Trust. Trust, and it will not take an hour to save you. Trust, and you'll be saved at that very moment. Ultimately, in coming to Christ, that's what we need. But we who are believers, there's never a day that we do not need to be trusting Christ as well. Trusting each day for the all-sufficiency of what Jesus has done for us. Let's pray. Father, encourage us that Jesus is truly the bread from heaven, that ultimately he is the satisfaction, the satisfaction of our heart and life and soul, the satisfaction for our sins. Remind us again as we come to the table of all that you've done for us in your son. In Jesus' name, amen.